welcome back to season two of The Expressionists. My name is Helen Rydstrand. And mine is Olivia Rosenman. And if you are joining us for the first time, double welcome. You have found yourself listening to a podcast made by a couple of Aussie women who are fascinated by language and culture, and especially by idioms because of the way that they freeze a specific moment and place in history in language, but also because of the sneaky but pivotal part they play in everyday speech. We are champing at the bit to get into this episode on horse idioms because it is a really rich field of idiom fodder. But first, we wanted to let you know that we are now on Patreon, a platform that makes it really easy for artists and creators like us to get paid. You can find a link to it on our website, expressionists.audio. Thanks to the weird world of horse racing, and specifically the race that stops the nation, that's the Melbourne Cup, which is on in a few days, for the inspiration for this episode. For that reason, Olivia's chasing a horse racing idiom right out of the starting gates. Then I'll look into a very common one, specially requested by one of our listeners. Our great thanks to Becky for the suggestion. But before I get into my idiom, let's talk first a little bit about the history of horse racing in Australia. Because while we, the expressionists, are not huge fans of the sport, because we're not really that into gambling or into animal cruelty, a surprisingly huge number of Australians are. In fact, it is the third most followed sport after our two major football codes, AFL and Rugby League. And last year, there were over 19,000 races. That's right. We even have a national horse sporting hero, Farlap, who was a superstar during the Great Depression and died, like many great stars, under mysterious circumstances. Also, like many Aussie stars, he was born in New Zealand, so you can pay your respects to this greatness at three different museums. So you can see his mounted hide, which I remember being really bemused by as a kid, and that's in the Melbourne Museum. His skeleton is at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarua in Wellington. And his big old heart is at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. Which I recently viewed, Helen. Uh, Yeah, again. uh, I had definitely seen it as a kid, Have you ever had that experience where you have something that you've had when you were a kid, like a soft serve cone, and it feels like it's much smaller than in your memory? Oh, yeah. I I mean, soft serve cone is an interesting example. I was thinking of like your primary school. When you go back, it's like tiny. All the desks are so small. Yep. And the slippery dip that you thought was really high is just piss weak. (laughs) But horse racing does have very ancient origins. It was part of the Olympic Games in ancient Greece and in the Roman Empire, and it is believed that other ancient civilizations from China to Arabia to North Africa had their own horse racing too. Yep. And in Australia, horses came out with the first fleet in 1788, of course. And the first horse race was held in Sydney's Hyde Park in 1810. It was allowed by Governor Corrie on the proviso that there was to be no gambling, drunkenness, fighting, etc. But there was, of course, plenty of drinking and also a riot. So it was banned for a few years. And then in 1835, one couple had sex on the course at Randwick <laughs> during the race. Wow. So anyone who's ever observed the uh, debaucherous outspilling from Randwick... Uh, Royal Randwick Racecourse can just take comfort in the fact that these people are taking part in a long-standing tradition (laughs) in our country. (laughs) Indeed they are. Now, of course, this coming Tuesday, the 7th of November, is Melbourne Cup Day. What a finish to the Melbourne Cup. Bell Bannon putting his nose in front of... 
So the race, for those who aren't aware of the Melbourne Cup, it is a very big horse race that takes place in Melbourne. Melbournians get a public holiday, which is amazing. And it's held on the first Tuesday of every November. And would you believe it, Helen, that the very first Melbourne Cup, way back in 1861, was also on the 7th of November. So what a coincidence. Yeah, that it's back on the 7th. Yeah, so it's been a public holiday since 1877. This was set up so that they could encourage big crowds at the track. So it's basically government-sanctioned or encouraged gambling. It is, and it's effective because for the past 10 years or so, more than 100,000 people have attended. So the record was actually in 2003 when 122,736 people attended. I wonder what was going on in 2003 that made so many people feel so very lucky. And it's a big deal, Helen, the prize for the past five years has been 6.2 million smackaroos. Holy moly. So this is a seriously big cultural practice in Australia at the very least, and globally, I suppose, to prove it, there's a whole host of racing idioms out there across the board and also ran to win hands down, win by a nose, dark horse, home stretch, back the wrong horse, and even wild goose chase. That's a surprise, isn't it? Mm. So which one have you chosen, Olivia? Well, Helen, perhaps I can try and coax you into it. (laughs) So have you been following what's been happening in New Zealand politics in the past few weeks, Helen? Jacinda Ardern has finally been named the Prime Minister. Finally, indeed. I feel like they had their election a really long time ago. It was a while ago and it was a pretty split vote. So government had to be formed in a coalition. Mm-hmm. And the kingmaker was a party called New Zealand First. And according to the man who leads that party, the negotiations were really down to the wire. Uh-huh. But finally, we saw Jacinda Ardern be named the youngest female Prime Minister of New Zealand. So I don't know about you, Helen, but I've got a bit of Jacinda mania. Oh, yeah, I think a lot of people do. She's only a little bit older than us. I know. Maybe we could be Prime Minister. I kind of hate her for that reason, <laughs> but no, good on her. I think it's great. So yes, down to the wire, Helen. Uh, enough beating around the bush here. So tell me, what does it mean exactly? Down to the wire means full of suspense or especially unsettled right until the very end. Mm-hmm. The first recorded usage is in 1950 from the Kiwi Courier. Baseball season is coming down to the wire and the leading teams are about as close as two Scotchmen on Bargain Day. Which I think is pretty fantastic that the example sentence for an idiom includes another idiom. Mm -hmm. A racist one. And a racist one. Mm. So we can deduce what it means. uh, But funnily enough, I couldn't find anything about it on the internet. Which? The Scotch one? The Scotchman. Yeah. So... It's their own innovation. All my incredibly sophisticated Googling brought up was the website for a BBC TV show called Bargain Hunt, in which two pairs of contestants are challenged to buy antiques from shops or a fair and then sell them in an auction for a profit. (laughs) What? I know. Sounds great. But anyway... But hang on. What do wires have to do with endings? Are we talking about like the the end of the wire when you run out of wire or something? That's a good guess, Helen, but unfortunately you're wrong. In fact, it comes from a thin wire that was strung across the finish line of horse races to help the adjudicator tell which horse won. Uh According to the Scientific American, 
A man named Edward Mybridge, who was an English photographer, and he is an important figure because he was a pioneer of photographic studies of motion. He also shot and killed his wife's lover, but was acquitted in a jury trial on the grounds of justifiable homicide. What? Yeah. Well, because he, the guy was shagging his wife, so that's okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, in 1878, he created this clever contraption to take photos of a horse in motion. And what he did was he got a thin wire that he put across a racetrack, Mm -hmm. which was attached to a series of mounted cameras. And then when the wire was tripped, the cameras would go off. It sounds a bit confusing. Let me read you a description from the Stanford alumni blog, because it actually so happens that the man who is the founder of Stanford University called Mm -hmm. Leland Stanford, he was a tycoon, a politician, and he also really liked horses and horse racing, Uh. like many well-to-do men of his time and of today. uh, He had a stud on his property and he hired Mybridge and basically he lined up 12 cameras on one side of the track and on the other side of the track there was a sloping white backdrop that was there to maximise the contrast. And one of Stanford's prized trotters was released and the horse was pulling what's called a sulky, which is a little two-wheeled carriage. So when the wheels went over the wire, it triggered all these photos Mm -hmm. and 12 photos were taken, but obviously it's slightly different lengths along the horse's trajectory. So it's pretty clever because, of course, in that day and age, a camera could only take one photo very slowly. And this itself was significant because at the time, people had a lot of questions about the way that a horse actually ran. And people wondered, does a horse actually entirely leave the ground when it runs? Of course, now we know the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. But back then, they didn't. This helped solve that conundrum. And also, my bridge's invention was, was important in the development of motion pictures. Wow. So... Amazing. That contraption was invented to try and better understand the motion of a horse, but then it was then adapted to help the adjudicator decide which horse had won a race. So the first documented use of this wire and camera contraption at a horse race was in 1881. Uh Uh-huh, right. So actually it's a pretty recent coinage considering how old wire itself is. So thinking of it as a idiom that's actually about wire is really a bit of a red herring. Yes, wire dates back Way back into ancient times, even before it was used for electrical purposes, it was used in ancient Egypt for jewellery and many other ancient civilizations Mm -hmm. worked out how to make wine. You you don't look surprised. I was kind of surprised by that. I mean, think about the jewellery that you see when you go to an old museum. It's all like coiled wire and stuff. It's true. Filigree. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of that. What's really interesting here, though, is that The horse racing wire took on its own metaphorical meaning and then that metaphor went on to develop other metaphors that went with it. I'm getting muddled here. Okay, keep going. After down to the wire, then basically what happens is the wire comes to mean the decisive moment at the end of a contest or other sequence of events. Oh, wow. So then other sayings such as under the wire, which means within the limits or scope of something, and wire to wire, which means from start to finish. I just think it's really interesting that horse racing then imbued wire with this whole other metaphorical meaning that then went on and had a life of its own. Yeah. So, Helen, if you've got a horse race that is down to the wire, right before the end of the race, right before that wire, mm-hmm. which bits of the horses are next to each other? Um, I guess their faces, the front part of them, mm. their shoulders. I mean, I, the, what do you mean, which bits? The whole horse should yeah, be next to each other. But especially 
they're next, right? Oh, okay, yeah, I know this one. <laughs> yeah. So, right, it's also, in a funny way, related to neck and neck. So neck and neck also comes from horse racing. Neck and neck meaning keeping level, neither falling behind or getting ahead of each other. So it's now used of two or more contestants mm-hmm. in all kinds of competitions. That was first used in 1799, so it's a bit earlier than the wire, obviously, before the invention of the wire. And Helen, if a horse race really does come down to the wire and the horses are running neck and neck right up until the end, which part of the horse do you think it is that makes a difference between the winner and the also ran? Well, I guess it's the the nose has to come first, right? That's right. Have you heard winning by a nose? No, I don't think I have heard that one. You haven't heard that? One by a nut? No? Well, that is an idiom that is used to mean winning by a very small amount. Yeah. So in the US, the nose on its own is in fact the official designation of the smallest winning margin allowed in a horse race. And in the UK, that was called a short head, not the nose. (laughs) A short head? Yep. (laughs) So hence we have by a nose, meaning a very narrow margin. Now, that was first recorded in English in 1851. So from this, we also get to push one's nose in front, which is to get a lead. And then there is also to bet on the nose. So that is you back a horse to win as opposed to backing a horse for a place or betting either way. So this is really a kind of metonymy, really, where the nose stands in here for the whole horse. It is. And maybe you should just define metonymy for our listeners who don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So a metonymy is just a figure of speech, uh, which is really common. We use them all the time in which a part is substituted for the whole that it is related to. So the head of the king or the hands on deck, which means just all the sailors should go and do stuff on the deck. Anyway, so that's I think that's what's happening there. So then you put a bet on the nose of the horse and then the rest of the horse goes with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So then this betting on the nose of the horse again takes on a life of its own and we get on the nose as its own idiom, which huh. interestingly has two very different meanings depending on which variety of English it is that you speak. Helen, I think you've got a story about this. Yeah, I do. I had a student a couple of years ago who in class was constantly saying that something was really on the nose and I'd just be like, do you mean that it is smelly? Which is how I would interpret that. So smelly and then the kind of metaphorical implications of that, which are like, there's something a bit fishy or a bit wrong here. But he he was like, no, no, I mean, you know, on the nose. And he would just point to his nose and we wouldn't get any further. And then I later realized, I actually went and looked it up because I was like, what is he talking about? And in North America, it can mean to get something exactly right, which we would usually say to hit a nail on the head, right? Exactly. So the first recorded usage of that North American usage was in 1883 in the magazine Sporting Life. He hit the ball fairly on the nose, sending it clear to the right field fence. So isn't that fascinating because you've got one sporting idiom then taking on a life of its own and here for the first time being (laughs) applied to a completely different sport. In the Australian version, meaning, as you said, smelly and then by extension offensive and distasteful, first appeared in 1941 in a dictionary of Australian slang written by a man called Sidney John Baker, who in fact was also born in New Zealand. There is also one other now obsolete meaning of on the nose, which is immediately before. So you might say Christmas Eve comes on the nose of Christmas. Oh, So it's very interesting seeing how all these horse idioms have really permeated through our language. And I thought it was a bit strange because as we said, I'm just not 
that into horse racing. I, I don't really get it. So we spoke a bit about the history in Australia and you might think it's a bit nuts that all these dudes arrive on the first fleet and within 20 years they've set up a horse race, right? You'd think they'd have other priorities, but apparently not. But that's because they came from a very strong culture of horse racing. So horse racing actually dates back to medieval England when horses for sale were ridden in competition by professional riders to display the horse's speed to potential buyers. The first known racing prize was, in fact, £40 during the reign of Richard the Lionheart, which was 1189 to 99. So then in the 16th century, Henry VIII imported horses from Italy and Spain. And in the 17th century, James I sponsored meetings in England and his successor, Charles I, also had a stud of 139 horses when he died in 1649. So it does have a long history. But if you're like me and you don't move in horse racing circles... You could be forgiven for thinking that these days the industry is pretty niche. Yeah, it's not a big part of my life. That's not a big sure. part of my life. But it turns out that, as we mentioned, Australia has more than 19,000 races. So that's the second highest number of races in the world, just behind the USA and just above Japan. Oh, my goodness. And we're a pretty small country compared to those places. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Amazing. There's more than $500 million in prize money every year in Australia. And this was the statistic that really blew my mind, Helen. Globally, the amount of money bet on horse racing last year was more than $100 billion. Wow. That's so huge. to give you a bit of scale, the value of all the wheat grown in Australia last year was $6,170 billion. Okay. And Apple's revenue, which is the biggest corporation in the world. Mm-hmm. Their revenue last year was $215 billion. So basically, horse racing is half the revenue of the biggest corporation in the world. It's a bit nuts. Wow, okay, so horse racing is a really big deal, obviously, around the world. A lot of money has been spent, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of poor horses... I think it's time for me to take the reins. Hold your horses, Olivia. I've got something to play to you first. Do you recognise that tune, Olivia? Helen, would that be the theme from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly by Ennio Morricone? Oh, you're good at this. <laughs> I can see that uh, you have a bit of a soft spot for a spaghetti western. I actually can't think of anything worse. Are you serious? Yeah. This is a great film. I'm sorry. It's beautiful. Mm. It's just like it's meditative. That's the thing you have to accept about the classic spaghetti westerns. They're kind of action movies, but they're also really not. They're just about wide open space and horses. So that tune ought to set the scene for the idiom I've got for us today, which is, of course, to hold your horses, as per Becky's request. And it's a phrase I reckon we've all said at some point. It's pretty much ubiquitous. And most of the time, I reckon it flies under the radar. Wouldn't you say, Olive? Yes, I think it's said a lot of the time with children. Yep, I think. Hold your horses. Mm-hmm. You'll get your dinner Snack. in a minute or your something. So I looked it up on Twitter, of course, and number one, unsurprisingly, it is everywhere. People use it all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Secondly, <laughs> I came across a pretty punny joke I think you will like, Olivia. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, good. When someone tells you to hold your horses, they're just encouraging you to be stable. Yeah. Hmm? It's good. Do you not like it? Puns just don't make me laugh out loud. Hmm. All right. I, I appreciate them inwardly. Okay. All right. I'll accept that. I do love puns. Yeah. They what? just... So do you you see what the pun is here? I get it. Stable, stable. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. So a, a stable. Were yeah. you worried I didn't get it? No, I wasn't worried that you didn't get it. I just oh. want you to explain it for our listeners in case anyone else oh, out there I isn't going to. Oh, I think our listeners are pretty smart. So what it actually means, hold your horses, of course, is just to be patient. Hold on. And it has, as the theme music I just played, should suggest an American origin. Well, probably. What do you mean, probably? Well, the first recorded usage in our go-to, the Oxford English Dictionary, is 1843 in a book by John S. Robb called Streaks of Squatter Life and Far West Scenes. And I'm not going to try an accent, but it's just hold your horses, boys. He'll come out directly. You so, did try an accent. I didn't try an accent. I tried to, like, <laughs> I'm just re- trying to read the phonetic okay. spelling. So jest, G-E-S-T, and hosses, H-O-S-S-E-S. Just hold your horses. Oh, that's better. Horses. Horses. Your horses. Your horses. Okay. So this is clearly a story about life in the Wild West. And in this example, it's, as I said, spelled hosses, H-O-S-S-E-S, which is an English and also especially a U.S. Um, regional dialectic pronunciation. It's not until 1939 that the regular spelling appears in Hold Your Horses, and then it's in a Canadian women's magazine called Chatelaine, uh, and the phrase is Hold Your Horses, Dear, which is, again, back to this very maternal uh, parental type Mm. phrase that we heard. So it comes out then, 1939. Have you encountered Chatelaine before? I have not. So it's apparently a feminist magazine, well, women's magazine, and from about the 1950s, they had an editor well-known called Doris Anderson, who famously turned down an excerpt of what is now a second-wave feminist touchstone, Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, because Anderson felt that the magazine had already covered the same ideas. Helen? Yes? You're getting off track. (laughs) All right, yes. So back to holding your horses. It's not a super old expression, really. It's about the same age as yours. But there is one other important point of origin that's mentioned in a few sources. That is a line in Book 23 of Homer's Iliad, which is commonly translated as Antilochus, you drive like a maniac, hold your horses. Although the original 1598 translation has it as contain thy horses. That would date it back to, in ancient Greek, to about 800 BCE. You don't sound convinced, Helen. I mean, it might be the case that it appears there, but it just definitely seems like the US history has a lot more kind of strength and relevance for the actual power that it has today because there's there's no real history of it coming up until that first instance in 1843. It's also clearly linked to the excellent one-horse town. That is a good thing, yeah. um, Which is, of course, a small rural town uh, where nothing important or exciting really happens. That one comes out in 1853. There's also an adjectival form, so you can refer to somewhere or something as one horsey, which I think is pretty cute. That's quite great. I've never heard that before. So as it is a very popular phrase, it appears all kinds of places in pop culture. There's a band called Hold Your Horses, and it appears in all kinds of movies and in songs such as this one. Now, of course, is to simply hold your horses. All right, Helen, I think we're on the home stretch now. 
Thank you very much for listening and welcome back for our second season. We are very excited to be here. But hold your horses, don't leave yet because before you hit the hay or whatever it is you are planning to do next, we've got a couple of things to tell you. Firstly, we would like to thank a few people that really helped us make our first season. Our wonderful theme music is by The Most. They're a mysterious band with no web presence, so if you'd like to get in touch with them, get in touch with us. We have an amazing tech guy who is basically on call 24 hours a day (laughs) and answers the most ridiculous questions. His name is Darcy Christ, and we're very grateful for his help. And finally, to Ellen and Fu Tang, who have just helped us out with some very profesh-looking photos. And if you want to see them, check out our website or our Facebook page or our Twitter page. We're basically just going to go crazy with them because we love them. Now, if you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do that too. As Helen mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're on Patreon. You can find the link on our website. You could also just leave us a review in your podcast player, like Mr. Keller from Canada, who we are very grateful to for his review describing the expressionists as fun, relaxed banter, like you're sitting at a dinner party. He also pledged a guarantee that not only will you learn stuff listening to the expressionists, but you'll also have a laugh as well. I reckon he's hit the nail on the head there, Olivia. You can also leave us a review on Facebook where we take idiom requests. And if analog is more your cup of tea why not just tell a friend about the show? After all, there's nothing like word of mouth. Now, I realise you may be chomping at the bit to hear what's coming up next time on The Expressionists. We're taking our minds straight to the gutter with a special episode on toilet idioms to coincide with World Toilet Day. I hereby guarantee plenty of potty humour, so get ready for that and set your alarm for Sparrow's Fart on Friday, November 17th, because we'll be posting the podcast in the wee hours. That's it for The Expressionists. Catch you next time. You didn't say really ha ha ha. You were just like, mm, mm. I mean, I I would like us to try it again. Okay. Think funny thoughts. <laughs> okay. So here it is. Chet Church Pain has tweeted. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Too soon, Olivia. Are you crying or laughing? Maybe we're just going to have to go with what we've got. And I'll think of another way to go on. <laughs> okay, no, no, no. I can do it. Go. <laughs>